Good evening. You're a good-looking bunch. If you're wondering what this was that I was carrying up here, I'll have you know it's my big book. It was given to me by the delegates of the West Central Region. It's the big book in big print. And that's pretty good for a guy like me, because I can now I can read it again. I am awfully glad to have it, and it's it's kind of a security blanket for me, like a little kid need a security blanket. I need that. My name's Don. I'm an alcoholic, and my problem is me. Hi, everybody. Have we got some Alanons here tonight? Quite a few. Thank God. Well, we've shared our illness, our disease, with the Alanons for a lot of years. And I think it's only fitting and proper that we should share our recovery program with them. I know that there are a lot of AAs that wouldn't be caught dead going to an Al-Anon meeting or going somewhere to listen to an Al-Anon speaker. But I would like you to know that some of the best things that I've heard in my recovery program have come from Al-Anon speakers. And once you take the alcohol away from us, I don't think there's any difference between an alcoholic and an Al-Anon. We both have living problems, and that's what we're here trying to solve and trying to learn how to live with. And my hat's off to the Al-Anons, and for those of you who haven't experienced hearing an Al-Anon speaker, I urge you to take advantage of the chances you have and go listen to them. Now, please, Al-Anons, don't get too smug about this. <laughs> because if it weren't for us, you wouldn't be here either. <laughs> Do you folks know the difference between an Al-Anon and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. Do you know the difference between a buzzard and a sponsor? A buzzard waits until you're dead before he eats your ass out. I said that I'm an alcoholic, and by the grace of God, I have not had to have had a drink since January 17, 1968. And for that, for that I'm extremely grateful, and for that I thank my higher power, I thank this fellowship and this program of recovery, and you folks who are members of this fellowship, because without all of that, I wouldn't have had a chance at recovery. I like to tell you that I consider myself to be a recovered alcoholic because that's what the big book talks about. The first words in that big book are, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And to tell you precisely how we did this is what this book is about. And I guess if those who gave us the program considered themselves to be recovered, that's good enough for me. When I say that I am recovered, 
that doesn't mean that I'm cured. I'll be an alcoholic as long as I live. But I have recovered from that compulsion, from that obsession that compelled me to drink even against my will, even when I didn't want to. I maintain and I contend that alcohol was not my problem when I was drinking, was not my problem when I came here, and is not my problem today. Living has always been my problem. Trying to live in the world of reality, trying to face things on a daily basis and cope with them. I always look for some way to find peace, contentment, and harmony in living. And for a long time, alcohol helped me find that. Alcohol was an answer for me. It wasn't the problem. It helped me find that peace and contentment and that joy of living. We talk about being restless and irritable and discontented. Sure I was. Many times. Still am. When not drinking. When not drinking. But give me a few shots of that alcohol. And Christ, the world looked great again. But that's what alcohol was. It was unanswered. And there came a day when it wouldn't work anymore. And that's when I had to find another way to learn how to live in this world of ours. That's when I had to come to you and come to this program and try to learn how to live in the world of reality. For me, speaking to a group is not my cup of tea. I don't particularly like it, and though I've been around a long time, it gets more difficult each time I get up here to talk. I've tried to figure out why that should be, and it ought to be pretty simple, it ought to be pretty easy. I tell myself a lot of times that it's because I don't know as much as I used to. And I think that's true when I was three or four years sober. God, I had all the answers. I don't have many anymore. Life used to be black or white. Now it's all gray. And there's a yes, but there's always a but. And there's something else you have to add. But I said alcohol was an answer for me, and it was. When when I drank alcohol, it almost immediately changed my perception of reality. When I drank alcohol, it almost immediately changed my relationships with people. When I drank alcohol, it made me bigger and it made you smaller. That's what alcohol always did for me. It changed me. And it changed everything around me. It didn't only change me, it changed you. Because normally when I would look at you, I would think you were a snobbish, clannish, stuck-up bunch of people that looked down your noses at me. Give me a few shots of that hooch. And hell, you became warm and friendly and smiling. And you'd invite me in to be a part of what you were doing. At least that's the way it seemed to me. So alcohol changed me. Alcohol changed you. Alcohol changed everything around me. It made living tenable. It made it reasonable, I guess. 
it made it a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. I've heard a lot of people stand at this podium and tell you about the first drink they ever took. And I can't do that. I can't do that. Because I can't remember the first drink I ever took. I believe the people who do say that because they describe the sensation of that drink going down and being warm and kind of expanding and going to every extremity of their body and everything becoming warm and good. I believe them because I experienced that later in my drinking. But I can't remember it as part of the first drink. The earliest that I can remember drinking was as a teenager. And I went into the basement at home, stole a bottle of wine, and went out behind the shed and glug, glug, glugged on that thing, trying to get as much down as I could, because I was going to go to a dance. And I had learned by that time that I could get enough of that stuff in me. It would change the way I felt, would let me be something different than what I normally was, would let me go to the dance and be a part of rather than a part from. I wouldn't have to stand with my back to the wall and my feet glued to the floor. I could get out in the middle of things and be a part of what was going on. And that's what alcohol always did for me. Let me be a part of rather than a part from. I was thinking today about those early days of drinking. I want to tell you that the good times of drinking do not stand out very strongly in my mind. I really don't remember much about the good times, and that's probably intentional, I guess, because over the years, I've always told myself that I don't want to remember the good part of drinking, but I never want to forget those last couple of years of my drinking, because those last couple of years of my drinking were total hell. I lived in a world of frustration, a world of futility, a world of desperation and blackness that there was no way out of. And it was that way all the time. I lived in an area of pain constantly. There was no such thing as a feeling of euphoria or getting high from drinking anymore. That was long gone. I felt a little better drinking than not drinking. And that's about the most that I can say for it. I lived in an area of pain all the time. Not quite as painful drunk as not drunk, but pain nonetheless. I didn't want to drink, and I couldn't not drink. I didn't want to be the way I was, and I couldn't not be that way. And I think the biggest dilemma that an alcoholic ever faces is when you hit that point where you know that if you take another drink, you're going to die. And you know that if you don't take it, you're going to die anyway. And it's a hell of a place to be. It's a hell of a place to be. Is it time to go home? <laughs> I came to that place. And uh, I finally thought that the only solution for me was for me to kill me. And if I could do that, it would solve my problems. 
it would solve my wife's problems, and it would solve my kids' problems. And I was going to do that one night. I was going to blow my head off with a shotgun, needless to say I didn't get it done. Instead, I wound up in a padded cell in one of our psychiatric hospitals. And I was in that padded cell until I could get sober enough where they could put me out on the floor with the rest of the people that were there. And while I was in that hospital, I had a series of sessions with a psychiatrist, and I lied like hell to him. I guess I thought that if he didn't know what my problem was, my telling him wasn't going to help anything anyway. I had a thorough physical examination. The doctors told me that I had a good deal of liver damage, that if I continued to drink, I would die. And that didn't make a lot of sense either. And eventually, I got out of that hospital, and I promptly got drunk again and stayed drunk for one more year. One more year in that loneliness and despair and futility and blackness that was all around. And the day came when something was to change. And I can't tell you what was different in that day because I don't know. I just don't know. It wasn't any worse than the hundred days that had preceded it. It wasn't any worse and it wasn't any better. But apparently it was the day of clarity and the day that I knew that I had to do something. I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never heard of it. The only thing that I had ever heard of was a place called Hazelden where drunks went for a cure. And God knows I needed one. At that time, there weren't the abundance of treatment facilities around that there are today. Today, they're like gas stations. There's one on every corner almost. <laughs> I think there were three in the state of Minnesota at that time. There was Hazelden, there was Pioneer House, and there was Wilbur. I asked Marion if she would call Hazelden. I asked if I could come there for help. And she said no. She said, if you want to go, call him yourself. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. Because I think that was probably the first time that she made me be responsible for my actions. And I did call them. And I told them who I was and what my problem was and asked if I could come for help. And they said yes. So I made arrangements to go the next day. And as I walked away from that phone, a voice seemed to come from nowhere and said, If you wait until tomorrow, you might not go. So I turned around and I went back to the phone. I called them again and asked if I could come that day. And they said yes. <coughs> Excuse me. In less than half an hour, Marion and I were in the car and we were on the way out there. I would love to be able to stand here and tell you that everything has been great in my life from that day on. And that would be one of the biggest lies I could ever tell you. Because it hasn't. I went there. I learned a lot about alcohol, I learned a lot about alcoholism, and I learned a lot about me. And I was told when I left there, in no uncertain terms, that I would have to go home, I would have to get into an AA group. 
I would have to read and study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would have to try to work the 12 steps as a part of my life. And I would have to become active in that group where I didn't stand a chance in hell of staying sober. I come home, I got into a group, I went to the meetings regularly. I read and studied the book. I tried to use these steps in my life as best I could. But it wasn't too long until I started to argue with the program. I started to argue with the big book. You tell me this program is based on hope. I tell you it's based on fear. That's what it says in there. That you'll either go crazy or you'll die. And that's fear, pure and simple. I started to argue with the steps. I started to argue with the group. I argued with the people who had a track record of sobriety. Nobody could tell me, as smart as I was, that I could never, ever have another drink. And to make a long story short, I had to go back and try it one more time. I had stayed dry for four months. Not sober, dry. And I think there's a hell of a lot of difference between sobriety and staying dry. Dry is the absence of alcohol in your life. Sobriety, is, to me, is to be able to find contentment, happiness, and joy in the way you're living. And I didn't have any of that. All I was was dry. I went to a bar. I ordered a drink. And I had one, and I left. And as I walked out the door, I was thinking, well, you're not as smart as you thought you were. I had a drink, and I left. I went back the next day, and I had one drink. And I left. More convinced that I was right and you were wrong. I went back the third day, and I had one, and I left. But then totally convinced that you didn't know what the hell you were talking about. And I went back the fourth day, and I didn't leave. I got drunk, and I stayed drunk for 11 days until a friend came and sat with me until he could get me in a hospital where I could dry out in a controlled setting. Because I didn't think there was any way in God's world that I could dry out without that kind of help. I regret that I couldn't learn from the big book. That I couldn't learn from the people who had a track record of sobriety. That I couldn't learn from the group that I was going to. But I will be eternally grateful for that last drunk. Because it took away any and all reservations I had that I could ever drink safely again. They were gone. I could drink again. All I had to do was go to a bar, go to the liquor store, and I could drink again. But I don't believe that there's anyone on this earth that could guarantee me another chance of sobriety. I just don't think there is. The only one that can do that is God, and I don't know whether he would do that again. And I don't want to find out, because I like it here. Thank God the doctor that was attending me when I was in that hospital drying out knew people in AA. And he had a man come and visit me while I was in the hospital. When I got out of the hospital, this man took me to a meeting. He assigned me two sponsors. I didn't pick them. 
He assigned them to me. And thank God for sponsors. Because those sponsors kept me so busy I didn't have time to drink. Those sponsors led me through the 12 steps. And they led me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I owe a hell of a lot to those people for the help that they gave me in those early days when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. They're still my sponsors. I've picked some others up along the way because whenever I see anyone around that looks like he has a lot of contentment or happiness in his life, I try to follow him around and try to find out what he's doing. And invariably, I find someone who has a highly developed spiritual way of life. A highly developed spiritual way of life. And I think that's what this program is. A spiritual program. I think the steps teach me three basic things. Spirituality, humility, and honesty. They teach a lot more than that. But that, to me, are the basic things that they give me. In the preface to the 12 and 12, there are some lines in there that Bill wrote that AA's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature that if used as a basis of living will restore us to a life of happiness and usefulness. And what more could I look for than that? But that's what I've always been looking for. There are some lines in the big book, in the chapter, there is a solution that says that the great fact is just this and nothing less. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our entire attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. And I guess what that tells me is that if I can learn to live in peace and harmony with me, with my inner self, with my conscience, everything will be all right. If I can learn to live in peace and harmony with my fellow man, everything will be okay. And if I can learn to live in peace and harmony with God and his universe about me, then everything will be all right. Everything will be all right. If I look at the 12 steps in the context of that message, Then, for me, the steps divide themselves into four groups. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you that this is the way you should look at the steps, because you look at them however you want to, in whatever way works for you. But this is how I see it and how I try to use it. But insofar as I'm concerned, the first three steps are there for me to find a God, to learn to come in peace and harmony with that God and to let him come in and be a part of my life. The next four steps are there for me to get to know me and to be able to get to a place where I can live in peace and harmony with myself. 
the next two steps are for me to learn to live in peace and harmony with my fellow man. And the last three steps, I think, help me grow along the lines that I have learned in the first nine. That's the way I see it. That's the way I try to use it. We talk about being powerless. If we're powerless, we must need something in our lives besides us. I was the center of the universe for a hell of a lot of years. Everything revolved around me and I had to control everything. And it didn't work. We talk about being restored to sanity. And many times I hear people talking about the crazy things they did while drinking. Excuse me. I don't think that has anything to do with the insanity of alcoholism. The insanity of alcoholism, as I see it, is that kind of thinking and the kind of actions I took between drinks, not while drinking. You put enough alcohol into anyone and do crazy damn fool things. But the kind of thinking that will let me go back and drink, uh, and drink again, knowing full well what's going to happen, because it's happened a thousand times before, but this time thinking it isn't going to be different is pure insanity. It has to be. I'm a compulsive person. I've always been compulsive. Compulsive about everything I do. Whether it's work, play, or anything else. As hard as I can go and as long as I can go. A year after I was in this program, I had a stomach resection done. Because I had had so damn many ulcers while I was adult drinking that I had so much scar tissue my stomach wouldn't work properly. They took out three quarters of my stomach. As a result of that, I haven't been able to eat rich foods or spicy foods since then. I always loved hot fudge sundaes. But if I have a hot fudge sundae, in five minutes I'll be out on the curb juking my guts out. But ever so often I have to go back and try it again. <laughs> To see if it won't be different this time. <laughs> Same kind of reactions. Rationalization and justification are a part of insanity, at least for me. Rationalizing my behavior and justifying it to everyone around me, to my wife, to my kids, to my friends, to my associates, to everybody, and to me. I guess it's really what you call the con. But I believed that con. And I could go back out and try it again. I believed it because I had to if I were going to continue to live, to live the way I had been living. If the damn world would straighten up and get in line with me, everything would be all right. If my wife would straighten up, or my kids, or the people around me. To me, that's all part of insanity. But it's all part of what I did between drinks, not what I did while drinking. I said I had to let God become a part of my life. And then I think in step three is where I found a manager. I had tried to control this life. I had to control, I had tried to control all those around me too. And it didn't work. 
and I did a lousy job. So it really wasn't too hard to try to let somebody else do it. I can't let him do it all the time, because i got to get back there and try it again every once in a while, and I get it all screwed up again, and then I'm right back to, hey, God, please take over, and please give me guidance and direction again. You ask me to look at me and to try to find out what my moral defects were. I hear a lot of people talk about this and talk about assets. I never worried about assets. Because if I had any, they weren't going to hurt me and they weren't going to get me drunk again. But those defects sure would. And that's what I was concerned about. And uh, after I'd managed to go through this, I had to share it with another person and to God as I understand him. And I did that. And I told this man every rotten thing I could think of that I had found in my inventory about me. And when I got done, he said, Don, you're an okay guy. I thought, holy hell. After what I've just told him, he can say that? If he could accept me, why can't I? And I think I learned some more about taking that fourth step. I think that probably one of the biggest things that I got out of the fourth step was learning what my values are, what my standards are, what I can live comfortably with and what I can't. And to me, that's just as important as learning all of those defects that there are about me. I think I've also learned that it's all right. Whatever I am is okay. It doesn't matter how bad or how good it is. If I can let you see me exactly and truly as I am, then it's okay. Now, you might reject me. And that's all right, too, because that's your problem. But if I'll let you see me exactly as I am, warts, scars, and all, then that's okay. If there's something about me that I don't like, and if I don't like it enough, I can change it. If I'm willing to do the things that I have to do to make that change happen, I can change me. But you can't change me. My wife can't change me. My kids can't change me. No one can change me but me. And I can't change another person in this world. And I guess that's where, thank God for pain. Because if I hurt bad enough, long enough, I'll do whatever I have to do to make that pain stop. That's generally changed something in my life. That's to change something in my life. I had to be willing to have these character defects removed, and I had to humbly ask God to take them. I thought I had to do it, and it didn't work. Nothing happened. Today, I feel about my character defects exactly as I did about my drinking. I think I tried everything known to man for me to control or stop drinking, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Not until the time came when I could admit total surrender and total defeat relative to drinking. 
not until I could go to another person, to God as I understand him, and say, I have a problem. I can't handle it. I need help. And ask, would you please help me? Only then, and then only, was I given the strength to do what I couldn't do by myself. When I could totally surrender and admit total defeat, then I was given the help that I needed to overcome this drinking problem. People say that all you need is willpower. God knows. Alcoholics have got a lot of willpower. But if there's anyone here that thinks that it's not a tough job to stay out there and keep drinking, you're crazy. It takes a hell of a lot of willpower to keep going through that same thing day after day after day. Today I believe that any of my character defects, that if I can get to the point where I can totally surrender and admit total defeat relative to that character defect, then I can go to God as I understand him and say, God, I can't handle this. Please take it. And I can tell you that he can and he will and he does. I don't stand here to try to tell you that all my character defects are gone because they're not. Because I have the ability to go back and pick them up and start using them again. And I have to go back repeatedly to ask God to take these things from me. And that used to bother me a great deal. Because I thought if I did this thing right, I would only have to do these things one time and everything would be all right. I would like you to know that it doesn't bother me at all today. That if I'm living a 24-hour program, one day at a time. It's not inconsistent for me to go back to God on a daily basis and ask for his help. And I feel comfortable with that. I had to be willing to make amends to people I'd hurt over the years. And I really didn't find that hard except for those who were the closest to me my wife, my children, my family. That was extremely difficult. Because most of the things that I did to them were acts of omission rather than acts of commission. Things I didn't do that I should have done. I wasn't there for their birthdays. I wasn't there for their graduations. I wasn't there for things that were important to them. I always had to be off somewhere drinking. My family never wanted for material things, for food, clothing, shelter, or anything material. But my kids didn't have a dad, and Marion didn't have a husband, because I wasn't there. I had to be off drinking. And I can still beat myself up over those things that I didn't do, and I do it every once in a while. And that's not too bad either. Actually, insofar as my family is concerned, they have forgiven me years ago. I think they forgave me when I first came into this program and found out what I was trying to do. And they have been very supportive in every move that I've made. But yet, I say I can still beat myself up about the things that I didn't do that I felt that I should have done. Guilt? Sure, it's guilt. 
but that's okay too. I take an inventory every day today, not a character defect by character defect inventory, but at night when I go to bed I review my day on a comparative basis. Did I do as well as I could have today? Did I treat people as well as I could have, or could I have done better? Did I do better than I did yesterday or last week? That's the kind of a comparative thing that I look at when I take my inventory at night. Could I do better? Did I do better? I separate the fourth and the twelfth step in the sense that, to me, the fourth step is a matter of taking care of the past, history. The tenth step is taking care of today or current events. And I try to keep them separate in that way. I'd like you to know that I have had to take a series of four steps because the longer I am in this program, the more capable I am of being honest. And as time goes on, I can come up with things that I couldn't come up with before, probably because of a bigger capacity of being honest today. And I find I've got to go back and do some more work on that past. I pray every day, asking for guidance and asking for direction. Meditation, so far as I'm concerned, comes mostly from what I hear from people like you, from the things that you tell me. And you tell me a lot of things I don't want to hear, but that's okay too, because I need to hear them. I think God works and talks through people. And the 12th step to me is the culmination of this entire program. And I think very specific. Oftentimes when you hear it read at meetings, it's read incorrectly. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, oftentimes it's read as a result. And I think that changes the meaning totally. A result suggests to be one of many. The result is specific. The singular result of making the first 11 steps a part of my life. I've had a spiritual awakening. Not as a matter of going to church. Not as a matter of reading the Bible. Believe me, I'm not opposed to either one. I think they're good for you. But insofar as we're concerned with this program, the spiritual awakening we're talking about is that one that comes about from making the first 11 steps a part of our life. Spiritual awakening in itself normally scares the hell out of a lot of us. But it's not that complicated either. If you go to the appendices in the back of the book, it explains it quite simply. And it explains a spiritual awakening as a personality change sufficient to allow me to recover from alcoholism. All it's talking about is change. Change from the way I was to where I am now. Change from the negative to the positive. It's what we talk about when we read chapter 5. What I was like, what happened, what I'm like now. And it says that's the message that we've got to carry to the alcoholic. The message of spiritual awakening. Not some vague nebulous message. 
But the message of the spiritual awakening is the only thing we've got to carry to another alcoholic. The only thing that I've got to give another alcoholic is to share my own experiences with that person and hope to God that there's something from that that he or she can use in their life. I can't counsel them. I can't tell them how to live. I can't tell them how to handle their financial affairs. I can't tell them how to handle their legal affairs. I can share my life experiences, and that's all. That's all I've got to give. And we try to practice these principles in all our affairs. And the principles to me are those things such as spirituality, humility, honesty, patience, tolerance, loving, caring, sharing, hope, those sorts of things. Try to practice them every day in all of my affairs. Not just when I go to meetings. Not when I happen to feel good. But every day in everything I do. And I try to. I don't always manage it, but I try to. And it makes a hell of a lot better way to live. Believe me, it does. I can't talk to a group like this unless I tell you something about my family. Marion and I will celebrate our 49th wedding anniversary next May. We've got four children. We raised a bunch of alcoholics. Our oldest child is a daughter. And I don't know whether she's an alcoholic or not. There are many times when I think that she is. There are many times when I think that she isn't. She's held the same job for more than 25 years. And it's hard for me to believe that an alcoholic could cover up that long. <laughs> but maybe she can but she has a lot of problems with living. I know that. She's been married and divorced three times. Which doesn't talk too highly of her ability to have good relationships. More than that, she lives in St. Paul. But she... Ha <laughs> I really didn't mean that the way it came out. What I was trying to get at is the fact that she does live in St. Paul, yet she has cut herself off completely from the rest of the family more than six years ago. Marion and I have absolutely no communication or do her brothers and sisters. Haven't the vaguest notion why. We can, uh, can't call her on the phone. I don't know what's going on there, but we never get an answer. But we can write to her, and I know she gets the letters because they don't come back. But never any word back from her. And I have the faintest notion of what that's all about. And I'll tell you, it's hard to live with. It's hard to live with. Our second child's a son. He was a musician. He had a band for more than 20 years. And he made his living in bars and nightclubs. And he's an alcoholic. He sobered up in those bars and nightclubs and celebrated 12 years of sobriety last October. And that's got to be the hard way to do it. But he did. And thank God for that. Our next child's a daughter. She's an alcoholic. She lives in Jackson, Mississippi today. Her husband is an alcoholic. 
she spent her senior year of high school in Glenwood Hills Hospital being treated for alcohol and drugs. She was in there more than seven months. And when she finally got out, she split. She ran. She went to New Mexico. Well, she went to Oklahoma, then to New Mexico, then to Texas, and finally wound up in Mississippi. I became a total failure during that time. I became a failure as a father because I couldn't help her. I became a failure as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous because I couldn't help that girl. And as I look at it today, I was trying to take her pain and her hurt away, and I couldn't do that. And I think as I look at it today, I was a big part of the problem. I could not be objective with that girl. I could not treat her as I would another alcoholic. I wanted to fix her, and I couldn't fix her. And she drank and used for another seven years. And she finally called one day. Dad, I just can't live this way anymore. I have to have help. And I don't know where the words came from that time either. But I insist, I love you, but I can't help you. I'm too far from you geographically, and I'm too close to you personally. I just can't help you. Call AA. And she did, and she called back in about five minutes. And over the telephone, they had wanted her to go to treatment. And she had 5,000 reasons why she couldn't do that. I said, that's okay. I have a friend that lives not too far from you. If he'll call you, will you talk to him? And she said, yes. My friend was Dr. Tom that lives in Providence, Louisiana, and I called him, and he called her. And they talked for two or three hours on the phone, and they shared a lot of things, cried together. He knew people in her town. He got a lady to come and get her and take her to a meeting. And she's been great from that day on. Now, she changed her dry date twice. Once, because after she was in a while, she decided she shouldn't smoke any more of those funny cigarettes. And that was okay. And the other time, she and her husband were on their way to Minneapolis to visit with us. They drove straight through from Jackson, Mississippi. It's about 1,200 miles. And on the way, they took no-dose pills to stay awake. And because of that, she was going to change her dry date again. And I told her it wasn't necessary, but yes, it was. And I said, fine, if you're comfortable with that, it's fine with me. And she changed her dry date again. And in February, she and her husband will celebrate 13 years in this program. Our next child is a son, and he's an alcoholic. He's a good athlete. And he was playing with a baseball team, oh, I guess down in Red Wing or somewhere down in there. And after the game, they had a few drinks and maybe a little merry wonderful, I don't know. But in any event, <laughs> on the way home, he had an accident, a head-on with another car. And a lot of people were hurt and hurt badly. Thank God no one died. And he was among those that were hurt. And he wound up in a hospital. He also wound up with a DWI. He wound up with two years probation and a hell of a big lawsuit hanging over, which thank God finally got settled. I talked to him about AA, not very much. I left it mostly to my friends, and they talked to him. 
And his reply was, my dad's an AA, my mother's an Al-Anon, my brother's an AA, my sister's an AA, my brother-in-law's an AA, and by God, I'm going to do it some other way. <laughs> and he tried. Believe me, he tried. But I'm happy to tell you that he celebrated eight years in this fellowship last January 1. But you see, I have a hell of a lot to be grateful for. I have a lot to be thankful for. This fellowship literally gave me back my life. It gave me back my kids. It gave me back my wife. More than that, it gave my wife a husband and it gave my kids a dad. And I owe a hell of a lot. And if I live to be 500 years old, I will never be able to repay it. I try. <laughs> I try as best I can to do anything I can for Alcoholics Anonymous. And every time I make a payment, the debt gets bigger because I get more back than I give. And it's always that way. You get more back than you give. So no matter how I try and how long I try, I'm never going to get a pay, but I've got to keep trying. We hear a lot about gratitude. And, God, I hate meetings on gratitude. I was at one last night. And it seems to me that it always winds up, can you top this? Tell you how great we are. I guess I believe that if we feel gratitude, we ought to show it by what we do. Show it by our actions. Show it by helping another drunk, another person, helping your group, helping the fellowship, doing something for somebody else. It's easy to talk. Words come by easy. It's a hell of a lot tougher to get out and do something. And I would suggest that if you feel grateful, if you feel gratitude, show it by what you do. Show it by the actions that you take. Alcoholics Anonymous was here when I needed it. It was well. It was strong. It was healthy. And more important than that, it was available. I think it's incumbent upon me, and I think it's incumbent upon you, to do everything we can to see that this thing is here and that it's strong and healthy and available to those who come after us. I think that's the primary legacy that we all have, is to try to ensure that this fellowship is here and available to those who come along later. Don't let's change it. It's worked well for a long time. Let's not try to fix it. Let's try to keep it the way it is, and let's keep it available for those who come later. Thank you.